everyone. Thanks for listening to the Four Lee podcast. The Four is for my mother, who passed away from ALS in 2018. And Lee is the name of my brother, who passed away a year later. This podcast is all about learning from each other and hoping to grow as a person. Uh, today's guest is Tom. Tom, go ahead and introduce yourself. How you doing? I'm Tom Bush. Um, recovering addict, alcoholic, 17 years. Congratulations. Snake breeder, <laughs> heavy metal singer, and uh, that's it for now with you. Go ahead and ask your questions and I'll get well, right so into it. Well, so snake breeding, how do snakes even breed? Well, it's it's a process. There's, there's basically two different ways that you can go with it. There's uh, There's bull pythons and boa constrictors, which have to be cooled and then wet and brought back up to temperature over a month's period. But with North American snakes and any snakes that legitimately brumate or hibernate, they have to um, be starved for about three weeks so they don't have anything in them so that when metabolism slows down, it it could kill them. And then basically what I do is I have a brumation room outside that I bring down to 52 degrees. Uh-huh. And they go in, they stop eating on Halloween. Uh, they go in to brumation on Thanksgiving. They stay in there at 52 degrees until Valentine's Day. And then up they come and they are fed and reintroduced. And that's how colubrids or North American and hibernating snakes actually have how, their how many sta- How many snakes do you have? Currently about 100. You have 100 snakes? Yes. What do you when you breed them? What do you what are you breeding them for? Sale. You sell them. I sell. What's the market for? Like, what are people buying them just as pets or? Typically, they're buying them as pets. Um, what's happened in our, uh, you know, it used to be only one percent of the households in the United States had a, had a reptile, but with kids and um, always wanting pets and increasing allergies that are coming up with feathers and hair and yeah. you know and kids, it seems like there's more allergies now than there ever was. Uh, these animals don't have those things, and they become a more popular, uh, you know, it stays in a tank. You don't have to walk it at 4 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you can, the snakes, you could feed once a week. Really? As long as they have fresh water, they're good, and as long as the temperature is correct. And uh, so they become more popular. And uh, also, some of the snakes that I breed are a bit higher end, and other breeders that are getting into it will buy those. So how much does a snake go, go for, like price-wise? Uh, it depends. I have snakes right now in the garage for $80. Okay. As well as $2,000. $2,000. What's the $2,000 snake? That is um, a Mexican red tail indigo, which is from a special region called the Guerrero region, and they're high red. So they are quite costly, yeah. if you will. At do $2, people $2, get those for pets? or They, they do. Um, zoos. I've, oh. I've sold to people who do, I also do uh, shows, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, birthday parties for kids, etc. And I've sold animals to other people that do that, that want to have an eastern indigo snake, which is another snake that I have, which is a threatened species. Okay. So it's federal and state licensing to have that. And they have to double check on who bred it and was it taken in the wild because that's federal offense. So they have to check up on that and whatnot and there's, there's federal commerce permit to get it to New York from the breeder. So how did you get into snake breeding? Well, <laughs> as a kid, okay. I always had reptiles. You know, I always yeah. loved them, that frogs. I had fish. I had snakes. I had turtles. I always had something. 
And um, some years back, I guess it's about 25 years ago now, I had uh, quite a few corn snakes. Um, and a friend of mine who happens to be a snake breeder, okay, he came over and he was like, why don't you breed these things? And I'm like, oh, no, I don't want to cool them down. You know, we, we, we spend so much time keeping them warm and we're afraid something's going to happen to them. And, and they take a lot of care and blah, blah, blah. And he took the snakes out and took a look at them. He said, you have a male here and a female here. Yeah. If you do what I tell you to do and breed them, I'll give you 20 bucks a piece for every egg unhatched. Just tell me when they lay the eggs. I'll come get them. I'll keep them warm. I'll put them in my incubator. So I said, all right. And I did it. And... The corn snake had 30 eggs. So that's like 600 bucks, right? And somebody handed me 600 bucks, and I said, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's... 600 bucks, cash. And I said, well, I love the animals. So I always had a few breeding pairs. Yeah. And then eventually, um, you know, I went through very dark periods in my life where I had nothing but an apartment. There was times I lived in my car. Yeah. Um, after my first divorce, I bought a... 1976 Wilderness Classic trailer and parked that in a secret spot and lived in that for, you know, a long time. Really? Yeah. And so I've been through some rough things in my life. I lived in my car for a while. But after I got myself back established again and I had been sober quite a while, um, this is about... 17 years ago, I, I had bought the house that we're in now, <clears throat> and um, I slowly got back into it, you yeah. know, but I went specifically, I'm not going to buy 10 $50 snakes, I'm buying two $250 snakes with that same $500 or whatever it turned out to be, Yeah, because those babies are $250 a piece. Yeah. So that that's what I started doing to have a little extra income and to enjoy my hobby as well. That's actually pretty cool. So what other what other hobbies are you into besides snakes? Well, music. Okay. Music has always been an interest of mine, and I picked up a microphone, I guess, when I was sixteen, um, and started with a with a bunch of guys in junior high school, uh -huh. and through the years, I've always been in a band. Even touring, even during some of those dark periods in my life, um, music was the only thing that I had, you know. And um, so I continued to to write songs, and uh, even after getting um, sober and and getting my life together and and fighting those first couple of years of recovery, which is so difficult, um, coming face to face with all the things that you buried. Um, it was it was said to me, you know, I used to just randomly, you know, I'd have to leave wherever I was if I was around people. I'd just start crying. Got to split, man. Yeah. Men don't cry. Men don't <laughs> cry in public. Very true. I understand. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. So you got to split. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. And then, you know, my sponsor said, no, no, no. That's the blood of your disease. That's the blood of your addiction running out of you. Don't be afraid to cry. Let it go. Let it flow and let it go. And, um... But at any rate, um, so I always kept writing and stuff, and then, you know, my I had some kids, and it was a hard battle, and divorces, and 
supervised supervision, you know, supervised custody, and all of that kind of stuff went on. And, uh, and then slowly I got them back. Um, and then I got them fully 50% of the time. Yeah. And what I had done was, and, and I've always been writing and writing and writing. And then my daughter was very much into singing, my daughter Gabrielle. And a couple of years ago, I bought her a PA system for her band up at New Paltz College. Okay. And she's up there singing and stuff, and in between semesters, she's like, Dad, I gotta have a place to put this. I can't leave this in the car. Yeah. It was big like this one. And uh, so she left it here. So I was taking stuff out that I wrote. Yeah. And um, still singing it, seeing how it would sound, and what a pattern would fit, and then doing karaoke <laughs> and whatnot. And uh, I was actually at work one afternoon, and I had a massive heart attack. Oh my God. So when I recovered from that, my wife was like, Tom, why don't you do something that you really enjoy? Yeah. You know? You, you, or you're down there singing. You don't think I could hear you? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's like, why don't you do something? And, you know, it's funny how things work out because then <clears throat> I'm like, yeah, who's going to want to jam with me, you know? I'm an old dude now, 54 years old. Who's yeah. going to want to do a metal band with me? So, of course, Miracle Technology, I went on Facebook Long Island Musicians Wanted. Okay. And I said, listen, I was standing outside Lemoore's in 1986 waiting for Slayer to go on. I'm still writing. I'm still singing. Front man. I've done this, 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 and this over the 30 years. I've played at Sundance. I've played the tri-state area. I was signed twice to a European label. Um, if anybody's interested, let me know. Yeah. And I got it, uh, a message from this drummer, Kevin Daly, who's working with Corey Schaefer, a guitar player. And uh, I went over there, uh -huh. and it was instantaneous. Really? It was instantaneous. We all liked each other. We all fell in together. We found a bass player immediately. Okay. And within a year, we're now on Spotify, Apple Music, all of these platforms, and we're soon, uh, March 4th, going into the recording studio to record the first Frequency Overload EP with a guitar player, Joey Z., from a band called Life of Agony, which I just is mean, known. Just so your band's name is... Is, Fre is Frequency Overload, yeah. Okay, and you can find Frequency Overload on Frequency Spotify. Frequency If you go on there, you can find all the links to everything. Okay. And what, what's your genre? Metal. Metal, okay. Yeah. I mean, there's a million subgenres and all of that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. But um, I think we would be considered crossover. Okay. Crossover metal. So you're starting to build some hype. Yeah, we've That's had some awesome. good shows. You really? Know? Yeah, so... Where, where where do you perform usually at? Well, typically right now, we're just around the island. Yeah. You know, you have some, some cool places. One of the places that we really like, it's a small place, but um, Shaker's Pub of Oakdale. Okay. Um, Nika, the owner, really keeps it uh, a nice place. You know, it it's kind of different when you have a female owner. Yeah. The bathrooms are clean. The pictures are dusted. <laughs> yeah. The place looks really nice. Yeah, you know? It's yeah. in a little strip mall or whatever, but they have a legitimate stage. And uh, I mean, we've had some good shows there, you know? Okay. So. That's awesome. That's awesome. So snakes, band, what else we got? We work. That's what we got to do, right? Yeah, we, we work. Yeah. We do HVAC, which uh, yeah, that wasn't an easy transition for me. How um, long have you been doing to that? About nine years. Okay. 
about nine years. Um, I had been a perishable food manager, seafood manager. Okay. For a supermarket chain called Waldams. Yeah, I remember Waldams. They're not around anymore, though, right? They went belly up. That's so crazy. after 27 years of doing that, because we had a federal warn notice, federal bankruptcy, um, they said, hey, listen, yeah. you, you can get your unemployment and we'll educate you to do either HVAC or nursing. Okay. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm no nurse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So if I could learn how to work on an oil burner, you know, my brother had done it. You know, one of my older brothers. Yeah. Um, I'm the youngest of eight, but one of my you have eight. Brothers, you have eight siblings. I did, yeah. Yeah, there was eight of us originally. I lost two brothers now. Oh, wow. I'm sorry. Throughout um, the years. But, uh, <clears throat> so, it was a hard transition um, to come into HVAC. But uh, they sent me to school for some training, some schooling and whatnot, and... Um, Needless to say, I've been doing that for quite a while now, nine years. Okay. I've got to, I've got to listen to your music after this. I'll put it out. I'll put it out on my uh, Instagram. I th- okay. I'm following yeah. you now, so. Well, we have some really heavy stuff, yeah. you know, which um, people like. But then we also have a different side of us. We actually, we wrote a song called Killed in the Melody. And it was about um, all the 90s front men that died. A lot of them from drug abuse, mental illness. I mean, you talk about Chester Bennington, Kurt Cobain, you know, yeah. all of these guys yeah. in a row. Nobody took it harder than the 90s grunge movement. Yeah. Lane Staley, the singer of Sublime, all of these guys, boom, yeah. dead. They were all like overdoses and suicides, right? Yeah. yeah. So we, we wrote a song called Killed in the Melody Okay. about how they were literally singing their suicide note. And if you read the lyrics, particularly Mad Season, yeah. You read the lyrics, and they were begging for help. Yeah. And as fans, we should be ashamed because we just asked for another encore, you know? Yeah, yeah. So basically, that's what the song is about. But that song happens to be very mellow. Okay. And a lot of people are like, wow, that that's a radio song, you yeah, know? So yeah. I don't know. But we just... The thing about uh, the frequency overload and who we are as people, we just play what we we feel. Yeah, it's it's we're very much free from the whole genre snobbery thing that goes on. We yeah. don't care. Do do you um, do you write all the songs? Yeah, I write all of the lyrics and the patterns. Okay. Uh, the guitar player, drummer, and bass player um, write the music. I've always been kind of curious, like so, how, like when a song's written with four guys, right? And you got a drummer. Like, how do you, like, you come up with something and then they're like, okay, I got an idea from this? Or how does that work? Um, Typically, the way that, it works different for everybody. Yeah. Because I don't play an instrument. Yeah. But you have guys that that are, you know, metal singers for Disturbed, let's say. David Draymond. He could play a couple of instruments. He doesn't play them well enough to play on stage, but he writes them on that. Okay. So he'll present the song to the band and they'll make it what it is. Yeah. In our situation, it's always been this way for me. They present the song to me. Okay. Yo, we came up with this one. You know, we got these three riffs. Okay. What do you think of this? Well, what's a riff? Uh, it's just a, a, a rhythm for the song. Okay. A okay. breakdown. Gotcha. Uh, maybe a chorus part. And, uh, and they'll say, well, you know, what do you think about that? And I'll say, wow, you know, that's great. Can we do the, the second one 
first, twice, okay. then do the third one. You know what I mean? So sometimes I have that input to arrange. Okay. But uh, a lot of times with this, uh, we have the um, Corey Schaefer on guitar, and he is just the bait and tackle shop, you know? Hooks after hooks after hooks. He just writes this stuff, and I'll come down, I'll, I'll miss a half hour of practice, and they got a whole song written. They're like, really? yo, you, you were late, but check this out. <laughs> and it's like done. Wow. You know? I got to give those guys a lot of props. It's uh, Corey Schaefer on guitar, Steve Little on bass, Kevin Daly on drums. Phenomenal. So this is your this is your favorite band you've been in? Absolutely. Really? And I feel freest. Yeah? You know, I mean, I was in other bands um, sober, but they were bands with members that I had been with in the past, mm -hmm. where my behavior had been the black cloud over those previous bands. Yeah. Bands that I could have went somewhere that I literally destroyed with my drugs and alcohol. Uh -huh. I'll admit it straight out. You know what I mean? I don't hide from my past. I am what I am. You got to own it. I, I agree with you. Um, when, you know, it's... So I guess with that being said, like, what? how do you forgive yourself and move on? Like, not move on, but like, you know, like not live in the past. Like, well, recovery teaches us you never want to close the door on the past. Yeah. And, you know, but you also have to, you have to surrender and forgive yourself. Yeah. And you have to say, you know what? I am willing to, the, the guy that I jumped off the stage at Sundance in 1991 and punched right in the side of his head with yeah. a bottle in my hand. Yeah. Because I didn't like the way he was looking at my girlfriend. Yeah. For no reason. I got to be able to see, see that guy, recognize him, and apologize. Or be willing to make an amend. Yeah. You know, sometimes they say don't apologize. That hurts people more. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, just know. be ready, be willing to make the amends. And when you come to that point where you're willing to change, it seems like things start changing for you. Yeah. You know, I'm not a big Bible thumper or any of that stuff. I know a lot of guys in the program are. Um, that was never the way it worked for me. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I just, I do, I do believe, uh, one thing I heard from uh, from a preacher, and he said, you know, you you don't quit something so that you can let goodness, or in his case, Jesus, into your life. Yeah. You don't quit something. You bring him in. You bring in the good. And the bad will weed itself out eventually. Yeah. So if you stay on the path, you keep your side of the street clean. Hey, you, you tell the girl at the counter, you gave me a 20 back. It was supposed to be a 10. Every time. No relenting. No pot, no pills, no booze, and no bullshit. Every day in your life, my life has gotten better. From living in a car, we're in a four-bedroom house. Yeah, congratulations. How did that happen? You know? How did that happen? So. Well, I mean, you put in the work. You, you know? have to, yeah. of course. Of course. And, you know, and, you know men, men in our society, it's, working is a pride thing. Yeah. You know, you got to always be running and running and hustling. Oh, I'm going to sell a snake. Oh, I got a hundred bucks for that. Hey, well, you know, what are you going to do next? It's always something. Yeah. And I guess that's part of the disease too, you know, the disease of more. It was more alcohol. It was more drugs. Now it's, you know, more snakes, <laughs> you know, more songs. It, 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 that part of it doesn't leave. But, and I was also told this by, by a guy in the rooms, you know, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. And so when you get rid of all the bad stuff, don't get rid of the good stuff too. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people do that. 
and then they're depressed and nasty all the time, and you they're white knuckling it through life, dry drunks. Yeah. You know. So. Yeah, I think that you have to like, like do like a personal inventory of like your strengths and weaknesses and and your different coping mechanisms. What's not working? What is working? And for me, like you know, running, gym, jujitsu, that sort of stuff is is where, where I focus. That like when I'm feeling depressed, I just go to the gym. Like, and then I feel better afterwards. And sometimes it's very hard to get in the car and go to the gym because, like, I just don't feel like doing anything. Right. But I know that once I make that step and I do something that's positive, the rest of my day will be positive. Well, that physical exertion is the best yeah. high that you can get. That's the natural high, you know? Yeah, but sometimes yeah. it's, you know, you, the mind plays tricks on you and you get in a dark place and you're like, oh, you know, you're beating yourself up about all the mistakes you've made or, you know, all the losses you've had and... You know, you could you can be a worse own worst enemy, one hundred percent. Right. Yeah. What was I, Judas, in my last life? Yeah. Like, what exactly. is what's going on? Yeah. You know, what and what that, did I do to deserve this? And that and that's the uh, the disease that tells you you don't have a disease. Yep. You have every right to be on your pity potty. Exactly. You know? I know. I know. And it's it's and but once you do get out of that spot and you're like and you start doing it more and more, you realize that you you control your life. No no one else does, and that's a freeing feeling. Yeah. And you know, it's like for the first time. Well, I, you know, I, there was a time when I was, you know, everything was going great and I was doing fine. But then, you know, just think like it was just I kept getting hit like, blah, 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 you know, and it just I couldn't get couldn't get up on my feet because I was getting hit with another thing, you know, and then I just laid there kind of broken in like a million pieces and I just kind of gave up a little bit. Oh, me too. Me too. I've been there. I've been there. It, you know, when I when I finally decided to stop doing drugs and alcohol, it wasn't really I didn't decide to stop doing that. I decided to stay sober long enough to figure out how to kill myself without forensic files being able to say the kids wouldn't get the insurance. I didn't think that, I thought my kids would be better off without me, but better with that $250,000 to split between the three of them when they got to be 18. That was my actual best thinking when I was white knuckling it through AA, cause I was looking at a couple of years upstate and you know, in prison and I just figured, fuck that, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I want to, uh, I want to die. Yeah. I'm not a father. I'm not a person anymore. I looked at myself in the mirror and I wanted to die. I couldn't stand it. I used to shave in the uh, shower because I couldn't stand looking at myself. You know, it was uh, it was a rough dark time. But what happened? You know, I went I went to AA, and somebody said, "Oh, don't leave before the magic happens." And I'm thinking, I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna come back here with an AK-47. I'm gonna show you guys magic. You know what I mean? (laughs) They used to call me Angry Tom. Yeah, that was my nickname there. So all of a sudden, you know, one day, the light bulb went off. Yeah. And it was from helping other people. There is a satisfaction in that. There, there's a very selfish payoff in that. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. So I started helping other people more and more and more and more. And oh, yeah, you want me to clean up the chairs? I'll be here till 10 o'clock. I don't care. Yeah. I'll sweep the place. Whatever. Because it made me feel good about me. It was uh, esteemable acts, they call it, you know? And then you start doing more of that and you feel better about yourself and everything gets better slowly. Yeah. You know? Do you still you still in the program? Yeah, we still go. Okay. You know, I don't go as often as I used to. I mean, you do 90 and 90 to begin with, and then you go like, you know, 
three times a week and then you go two times a week and now I get to them as often as I can. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, they have a they have a good meeting out here at six forty five in the morning. Yeah. I'll probably be there tomorrow. Yeah. You know, but you know, they it's have a good uh, way to start the day, I think. Yeah. 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 Plus people that get up that early and actually get out of the house and go somewhere to do that are serious about yeah, it. Yeah, that's true. And and also some of them mandated there from yeah. the sober houses. So you get there and you get to keep it green. Yeah. These people are suffering and crying and you know, and you it it, it, it it's very humbling to be there, which is, you know, something that we always all have to do is stay humble because the great I am and the ego comes back up and I can do better and I and I'm better than this guy or I should do this or I should do that. And that's part of the problem with uh with everybody, not just people in recovery. Yeah. Um what was the name of that song you showed me earlier when I first walked in? Was Sunburn. Yeah. That song was I mean that's that's is that is that out on Spotify or anything yet? Not that isn't yet. We have it um recorded and somewhat mixed. But uh it's not it's not ready yet. And now we're going into the studio to we have to pick 3 of the the most palatable and best songs and that's going to be the producer's job. So we don't know if that's going to be one of them or not. What, for, what for an EP, you know. Yeah. Oh, so you're putting out an album. We're going to put out an EP and then hopefully next year a full length. Oh, wow. But what inspired... I mean, that song was amazing. What inspired that? Well, it took me a long time to um, to put it down on paper. Yeah. What had happened to me after my brother's death. My brother and my father both died, like, back to back in 1987 when I was graduating from high school. I'm sorry to hear that. And if you look, actually, yeah, these three lines, these three lines, and these three lines. Yeah. Those were... A poem that I wrote. Okay. After my brother died. Um, the rest of it, uh, this, the band presented me with a song, and this pattern fit. And so the rest of it wrote itself within minutes. And that's typically the way that it happens to me. It's kind of like a catharsis. So you're, you're telling me in 1987 you wrote this poem? I wrote... These three lines, yeah. these three lines, and these three lines. And then when did you write the rest? The rest I wrote um, a little less than a year ago when I met these guys. So almost like 30, 34, 35 years apart? And the 35 song. years apart. That's crazy. So you kept that original poem all that time, and then the perfect song came about? Yeah. That's it. Guy, see, the Lord works in mysterious ways, man. I'm telling you. <laughs> there, you is some, there is some pattern to things if you look. Yeah. You know? Because it, it fits beautifully. It's a great, it's got to be a great song. Like, I mean, I'll definitely send it to yeah, you, yeah, even yeah. though it's unreleased. I yeah, can do that. Yeah, okay. I can send it to you. I would appreciate that. And um, it, it helped me a lot to, to understand what happened to me. And part of that is the forgiveness of self in there. You know? When... Um, I was not emotionally stable enough to handle losing my brother and my father at 18 years old. I just wasn't. Yeah. And, uh, of course, previous to that, I had been smoking pot and dropping acid and other stuff that we did in the 80s. Um, not everybody. Some of us. The black shirts, dirt bags, long hairs, whatever. And... Um, it just took me over the edge where it became a mission. And I realize now, you know, I was trying to hurt myself. 
Yeah. It was self-abuse more than it even was self-medication. Yeah. You know? It was, uh, it was dark years. But I believe that it was, you know, I have three children, Madeline, Robert, and Gabrielle, and it was after Madeline's birth. I was a functioning alcoholic. I, I was worked and had a home and whatever, and um, after Madeline's birth, I started to make a little bit of a change. And after Robert's birth, a little bit more, but not great. I wouldn't drink till they went to bed, but I would drink myself till I pissed in the closet. Like, it was bad. Yeah. And then Gabrielle came along, and she was like, you know, just one bigger reason now that I couldn't look in the mirror. How do you have these three beautiful children and you're, you know, you got a bottle of Jack Daniels hidden downstairs in the bathroom in the, in the toilet tank, taking a, the ceramic top off the toilet tank to reach in there to get a bottle out that you have hidden. Disgusting. So, um, you know, the divorce happened and now I'm living in an apartment and, uh, <laughs> you know, normal morning for me. Got up, Jack Daniels in my coffee, mm-hmm. Percocet, now I'm ready to go to work. I wasn't ready to go to work. And I drove into a stand of oak trees at about 60 miles an hour. No seatbelt. And I was helicoptered from Manorville to Stony Brook Hospital. Um, but one of the things, and this was a crucial in my change... You know, I'd been divorced, so in the van that I was driving, I had kid seats, baby seats, you know, yeah. for the kids. And when they were cutting me out of the car with the jaws of life and dragging me out, I could see those baby seats covered with blood. And I did not know if they were dead, if they were there, I didn't know. And it was my blood. But that scared me enough to say, you know what? I'm going to get to AA. I'm going to learn how to get sober temporarily. And then I want to die somehow where my kids will get this money when they turn 18. I don't deserve to be on this planet anymore. And that's the way I felt. That was my best thinking at the time. But... You get to AA and, you know, you you walk in there and you might be a homophobic racist and the first person that comes up to help you is a gay black guy (laughs) and says, listen, dude, I got a place for you to stay. Yeah. You know, I got a little apartment. You don't have to, you know, live in the street this month. Yeah. Just help me with the groceries and do the right thing. It's amazing what these people are capable of. <clears throat> and a lot of people there, they say, you know what God stands for? Group of drunks. Because <laughs> that's where you will hear the truth. Yeah. You'll hear the, the, the essence of the universe speaking to you through people that are helping other people. Maybe love is God. And that's what these people are doing. Selflessly loving everybody that comes in there. Yeah. Loving them back to life. But, yeah, it was, uh, it was horrific. And... Um, but that was one of the crucial changes. And the kids, you know, eventually I got them 
unsupervised and I got them weekends and the longer I stayed sober the better things got mm-hmm. and that's just how it happens you know I mean that's really powerful stuff um, all of it um, so what's what's your life like now um, I never had it so good yeah uh, I work for a family that you know. Yeah. These are good people. Yeah, very good people. They're good people. They are um, kind, uh, fair. Um, if you screw up, they're going to let you know. Yeah. But it's never over the top. It's never, you know, like other employers that I've had. Yeah. You know. So uh, that that's one thing. Um, the kids are back in my life. And for a while, and, and I was told everybody goes through it. They weren't, but now, you know, they, they have their own teenage things and they're uh-huh. all nasty and I don't know anything. And all of a sudden I know more and more. Yeah. As they mature, I know more. Yeah. And they start to see things. So that, that's, that's great. You know, I had my, we had a show a few weeks ago. And my daughter came down from Newport's uh, with her boyfriend, Adrian, and they showed up at the show. That's While cool. I was yeah. on stage, I seen them in the audience. I was blown away. That's really cool. You know? yeah. um, I'm married to a great woman. Uh, she really, really takes good care of me. Like, I don't know. Some people say you know, there's a big difference between having a traditional wife and having a modern wife. Modern wife works. Traditional wife takes care of the food, the house, this and that. She does both. <laughs> She does both. Yeah. I don't know how. Yeah. After the heart attack, I got a special diet, and she's got done all the research. There's a menu on the refrigerator. What you're gonna have Wednesday, Tuesday? Have two apples. Have the, it's how how long has it been since the heart attack? About three, about two years. Okay, a little over two years. <clears throat> um. So I mean, I really, I I sometimes when I. And, and that's another thing that I do is make a gratitude list. Some, sometimes when I feel down and, and when I... I don't have to look any further than what I have. Yeah. I don't need this much. I could do with a lot less. I don't play guitar. There's three of them hanging right here because they look cool on the wall. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm, you know... I've never had it so good. That's awesome to hear, man. You know? Yeah. And, you know, I... I I'm not ready to go. But if I left tomorrow, I think uh, I think I would have climbed a few mountains and overcome quite a few obstacles. And I'm all right with that, you know. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, your brother passed away in 87? Yeah. What, you know, I, this podcast is for my brother, right? Um, and I talk about him pretty much in every episode, and, you know, so people know who he is. But I, I don't know your brother. If you wouldn't mind, just kind of telling me who he was so you know he my brother Robert was uh he was a guitar player he was a wild guy he loved to party (laughs) and um he had moved into an apartment in my grandmother's house my grandmother had a house in Brooklyn we had actually we moved out here from Brooklyn um in 1976 but uh he had moved back in there she had an apartment two bedroom in the basement I was gonna go move in there and, and live with him he uh, he was actually a elevator repairman in Manhattan. Really? Yeah, he That's got so a job <laughs> through my uh, my sister's boyfriend, 
and uh, and I went in to visit him a few times, and uh, you know he had the keys. Yeah. So he had the keys to elevators that nobody else had keys to. Yeah. So we take a freight elevator to the top of the Empire State Building. Oh wow! And then from there into a staircase that nobody goes to. We were up by the spike. Wow. Like, looking out, I was like, what the hell? That's awesome. You know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, he was a good guy. He was, uh, he was a bit of a partier, and that, and that was that was the end. That That's how he died, was uh, he was out with a friend of his, and they went out to a club, and um, he had drove there. It was his car. Um, but neither one of them should have been driving, mm-hmm. and he was obliterated, so... He had his friend drive who shouldn't have done it. And um, they got in a horrific accident. He was ejected from the car. He actually lived for a couple of days in the ICU. And he was, you know, he couldn't, his face was smashed. But he was writing to my sister, Barbara, and whatnot. And I had assumed, because I had a new job, and uh, that I would be able to go and see him on the weekend. This was like on a Wednesday. Yeah. And then my oldest brother, Joe, came to me that Friday and told me he didn't make it. I'm sorry, man. So I never even got to say goodbye. It was rough, man. Yeah. It was rough. You know, you lose your your brother, your best friend. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I do know that. Somebody you could say anything to who knows you since you were a baby shitting in your diapers. Yeah. It's different. It's different when, when you lose a friend. Yeah, it hurts a lot. But your brother... Yeah. It was it was too much for me, and and I mean that that's what began my <laughs> illustrious career of arrests and police interaction and everything else, yeah. drug and alcohol abuse. But um, you know, a lot of people don't make it. You know, they they. Um, I remember sitting in, uh, I think it was Seafield, and they were like, "Yeah, there's ten people in this room." After five years, one of you guys will be sober. Who's it going to be? That's the actual statistic. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. How is this going to work? You know? But the way it works is you just keep going. You know? You just keep talking to people that are in the same cluster with you. Yeah. You know? A lot of the most successful people in the world talk about the mind trust. The group. That's what we do. We go there and we hear a guy tell a story and you can identify with part of it, not all of it. Yeah. But you can say, man, I see that. Yeah, definitely. That's me with different clothes on. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, that you know. That, yeah. That's what saves us. Yeah. Is each other. It, there's a... This is where the group think or whatever they call it, but it's a, it's just realizing you're you're not alone. That's a huge part of yeah. it. Yeah. Because sometimes you feel like you're alone. Even if, and I would do this when people would be trying to help me, I would just ignore the help and then be like, oh, no one cares, you know? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, isolate myself, but also cause that isolation. Of course. Like, not going to things or, so, yeah, I think, you know, we get in our own heads and become our own worst enemies. And that's at, at that point when you move that wall and you're like, you're doing this to yourself, that there's so much opportunity out there. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's, uh, it's tough, you know, and you, the biggest thing that we can learn is, you know, the, and part of that, not that you're not alone, is uh, you're not unique. You did what? 
Oh, mm-hmm. you, you, you committed adultery? Well, there was a word for that 2,000 years ago. Yeah. What did you think? You're an original? <laughs> you know what I mean? And that... And you don't think about it, but when they say these things to you, and some of them, some of these sponsors, they come across hard, man. You want to fight them, but <laughs> but they help. They help so much, then, and you don't realize it until after. And you think back, and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, you know. Well, I, some of it's like the ego. You know, you got to check your ego a little bit, and then take advice that you, maybe you don't want to hear, but you need to hear. Right. You know. Yeah. Um, the hardest pills to swallow. Yeah, right? 100%. We ate a lot of crow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You did. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's interesting what you just said about the 2,000 years ago they had a word for it because I guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bad behavior wasn't invented, you know, 50 right. years well, ago. when I did my fourth step, you know, um, I had been an aspiring heavy metal rock star yeah. for m- my whole life, basically. Yeah. So I talked about, you know, stuff that I did in that pursuit as a, drunk, acid-taking teenager, mm-hmm. you know? Blasphemy, desecration, and this is why I'm unforgivable. Mm-hmm. And the sponsor said to me, he said, you're pretty banged up, but those words were around a long time ago, too. Yeah. So what did you think? You're unique? You're more special than the next guy who's crapping his pants drunk next to you on the park bench? <laughs> we're all the same. Yeah. We're all the same. And if you want to get better, you can. Yeah. You know, so... It's very, very helpful because, you, you know, th- that fourth step, as you know, that personal inventory is the make it or break it. Yeah, and you got to be, you can lie to anybody, right? But you can't lie to yourself. Right. You can't, you know, like, and when you're lying to yourself, you, you know the truth, but, right. you know. It is worse. Yeah, it, it, it is worse. It's like, it's like uh, relapsing. You, 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 now you have a mind full of AA. Yeah, and a belly full of beer, and I've done that many, many times before I got sober. Yeah, and that is the worst feeling in the world mm-hmm. of self-loathing that you could possibly have. Depravity, you just, oh, <laughs> terrible. Yeah, terrible. You know, but they say it's not necessary for everybody, but sometimes relapse is part of recovery. Oh, I mean, you know, I look at like being sober and stuff is like, you know, it's, it's someone else like getting on a diet, right? Maybe they have a cheat meal or something. Like people make mistakes, but as long as you keep going in that general direction and, you know, like if, if you relapse or, or, you know, or you, you have a cheat meal, whatever it is, as long as you just keep moving forward to that, that target that you know you can get to, that's different than then saying like, oh, see, I can't change and then going back, you know? Right. Um, because I think that I mean, I don't know the percentages, but I would assume that a lot of people who have drug problems are like they do relapse. Yeah, you know? and I and I went in and, and I told them all, you have to tell your, you yeah. have to dump your crap when you get there. And yeah. when it happened to me the first time, and someone said, yeah, but you didn't, you know, you're not going to have it counted in a row, but you didn't lose those six months. Yeah, those important six months. Don't yeah. ever think that you lost that. What you what you came up with, that eight months, that year, that two years. One guy had fifteen. Yeah. And then his wife died. He was not prepared for it. Yeah. You know? No, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's uh, one thing. I, I hope I, I hope to God I don't lose anyone else, you know? Like, well. That's, that's something I'm really scared of. Um, I would say, like, right now, you know, I'm not dating. I'm just focusing on myself or whatever. I mean, it's been going well, but, like, obviously, you know, I don't want to be single forever. Um, but, like, yeah, like, my, that's one of the things. I'm like, well, what if something... And that's how my mind works. Like, I think worst-case scenario. But, um, and I think that... 
in a way that's just because of how the past you know couple of years have gone with it have having worked out to be the worst case scenario right so i do have that fear in the back of my mind like what happens if if someone dies or mm. you know right uh, but you don't want that and i did it for a long time you don't want that shell to come up that shield to come up where you're pushing people away and you're missing the opportunity whether you have a week to spend with them yeah or 30 years you're going to miss that opportunity for a sunset with some beautiful girl. Yeah. You know, who, why? We have to, we have to take um, these beautiful things that life throws at us and enjoy them, even if it's for the moment. Yeah. Even if it's for uh, something that is platonic. Yeah. But it's a beautiful moment and it's a learning moment. And we can take these things and grow. You know, I would have never ever met my wife when I was drunk. Yeah. She would have crossed the street if she saw me coming. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I met her after 10 years of sobriety. Oh, really? Yeah. My current wife. And <clears throat> we've only married a few years. We've been together, but we only married a couple of years ago. Yeah. You know? But, uh, you know, you, you have to you have to take... You have to take the good with the bad, but you also have to understand that we only have a finite time, mm. and we have to make the best of it. Why am I not going to go out and, and sing in a metal band at a club? Oh, there's people drinking there. Yeah. I said, I know. We have a band has a signature beer now. That has nothing to do with me. Yeah. That has no power over me at all. I'd rather drink bleach. <laughs> I know what happens to me if I drink that garbage. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. there's a lot of normal people in the world. Yeah. I'm going to a birthday party tonight for uh, a friend of ours. Yeah. People are going to drink there. Yeah. The best thing I can do is if somebody is really banged up and they say, man, how did you ever stop drinking? Oh, yeah. Then I can get on a podium and I can tell them, hey, I have this experience, that experience. But they have to ask first. Yeah. You can't help anybody unless they want help. Yeah, I think that is that is hard when you see somebody struggling with whatever it is, and you kind of know like maybe they're not. It's not the exact problem set that I have or you have, but it, it's something that you could help with. But like you know, they're not there yet. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, they have to come to you. What do they say when the student is ready, the teacher appears? Yeah. I mean, I, I had a lot of opportunities like that over the years. I think looking back on it, where I'm like, you know, people probably knew that I was going through some some tart or dark times rather. And, uh, but I just, I wasn't ready, you know, you know, it, it, my sister, she's due, that's why I'm here. It, she was due in, uh, April. So it's my first, my first, uh, nephew. Uh, it's the first kid in my family in years. And, um, you know, I was like, I, I want to be around for that, you know, like I want to be around for all of it, all of his stuff. Um, and I want to be, you know, I want him to be proud of me and I want to be proud of him, which I know it will be. But, um, so that, that was kind of what inspired me. You know, and it wasn't like she told me she was pregnant, and then you know I was like, all right, I know what I know what I need to do, and you know there's a little fumbling along the way, but eventually I got there, and uh, I've never been more excited for anything recently. You know. Yeah, yeah, and that happens. That yeah. happens, and and the more you help other people, and the more you keep your side of the street clean, and when you don't, you're promptly ready to admit your wrongs. Yeah. When you follow those rules, things continue to get better from the inside out. Yeah. Happiness is an inside job. And when, when, when you emanate that 
and you know good things continue to happen you know bad things happen sometimes you know but but you know we learn how to handle those things yeah and uh it becomes i guess I would hate to say it because it's not true but it becomes easier to deal with life's tragedies when you have a clearer understanding of life itself yeah you know it's difficult on anybody's standard but the things that you have under your belt already and the things that I have under my belt already mm-hmm. when something happens you know I used to not go to funerals yeah oh I'm not going you know, 20 years later see the guy oh yeah, I'm sorry I didn't come your father died I just you know I didn't have it in me to be able to go to one now I can go there and be able to stay till the end and talk to the person and, and be there, be present for them, yeah. you know? Things I could never do before. Well, I mean, I think your personal growth is incredible, you know? Like, it's really cool. Um, I should write it all down. <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I mean, you got the snake thing going on, the rock, but, like, just, just seeing, that, like, how you went, you know, it's, it's a pretty cool transformation. It just shows... That uh, mindset's really like everything, you know. Like, I have some crazy Forrest Gump type stories too. Yeah. I mean, I was on the lamb from the probation department here on Long Island as I was a sh- cruise ship photographer at a Port Canaveral to the Bahamas. What? Yeah, there's really? a, a whole nother story. I mean, I got a million crazy stories. Yeah. But, you know, I got let go from the cruise line. It was called Premier Cruise Lines. Yeah. Um, the big red boat. Before Disney had their own cruise line, we had romantic ships and we had family ships that had the Disney characters on them. And I was a photographer. And uh, we were in dry dock for Greek Easter. Yeah. And, of course, they're, they're giving me booze. I'm taking as much of it as I can get. And yeah. I ended up was challenged by one of the navigation officers and ended up diving off the ship. You jumped off a cruise ship? I jumped off the cruise ship <laughs> and swam back to the dock. And the quartermaster was like... You're done, dude. You're reported now. You know, I was hammered. Fuck, you know? <laughs> Terrible. Yeah. That's funny. That would... <laughs> How far did you swim? Well, it was only from the... We were docked. Okay. It was actually not called dry dock. It's called wet dock. Okay. They were docked for the day. So, you had to just... The, the big thing was the drop to the water from the, you know... Oh, yeah. The fourth How... story of the ship. Did it hurt when you landed? Or well, you probably... pin dropped. Yeah, okay. Pin drop, cover your face and your uh, groin. But, <laughs> but then, you know, those guys were swimming around to an open door. Yeah. I swam to the dock. Okay. And the, the, the Greek guys, it was Greek Easter. Yeah. That's one of their things is jumping off the ship for Greek Easter. I didn't know that. I went to the wrong thing, but I wasn't going to be challenged. Yeah. And not do it. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so I got let go from the cruise line. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah came back to New York and I started cooking overnight. You were a chef? Enough. Uh, I was a line cook for many years. Okay. So I um, I was at Billy's 1890 and I was doing the overnight from I think it was from 7 at night to 3 in the morning. And the one of the bartenders there was, hey listen, you really always got the food coming out. It's always the right temperature. It looks great. You do design on the plate and blah blah blah. I'm opening a place in Rocky Point. You want to come with me? So mm-hmm. he opens Gallagher's first round draft choice on okay. Broadway. And we had all the 
sports games. It was a sports bar. Yeah. So I was the kitchen manager there. I'm still on the lamb from the probation department that's looking for me. Yeah. Now, I don't understand. I don't know. My probation officer had it in for me. Okay. Because he liked me, and I dissed him. I disappeared to Florida. This yeah. is after everybody died. So this is in between that period. So yeah. what happened was I, I he he issued a, a warrant for my arrest every time I didn't show up for probation. Oh, my God. So you had like 20 made, warrants or something? I had code five. They don't even count them after 20 or 15 <laughs> or whatever. So, so now I can't get a driver's license. Yeah. So I have a little apartment. I'm working at this place in Rocky Point. And I have a mountain bike. And yeah. the gutters are full. And I'm a manager. So they call me up. You got to come. The, the gutters got to be cleaned out. So now I come down there. I'm in, a, in the snow, yeah. in the rain, on the roof, clean the gutters out. Yeah. I come down. One of the drunks stole my bike. No. The mountain bike? The mountain bike. So the boss, the owner, brings a mountain bike in. Okay. It's got a flat tire, but you can get it, you know, done and whatever. All right. So I'll walk up there when I have a chance. I want to break because there was a place right there that would fix it. Yeah. On he- over here on Broadway, Rocky Point. So I walk out with the bike and I'm walking down the street with it on my shoulder. And here come the police. Looking for you? No. Looking for the bicycle thief because it was reported and I didn't know. Oh, the bike you had was stolen? Right. Oh, and they're like, no. yo, there's been a lot of bicycles stolen, right? Let me see your ID. Yeah. I gave them my ID. Oh, no. Put your hands on the hood. They had their guns out. <laughs> I got code five warrant. They don't know if I'm a yeah, rapist, yeah. a serial yeah, killer. Yeah. Code or... five's no joke. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that was that was part of my illustrious career. But I got a how lot did, of. How them. did it play out after the the code five? Like everything got just taken. I out. went to prison uh, in Riverhead. They had to wait until ladies' night, which was Thursday, to bail me out because it was five thousand dollars in bail. Jesus. So. I got bailed. I think that was a Monday. I got locked up. I got out four days later. And then what they did was they got me an attorney. Mm. Um, the bar helped me out. And I went there and I did what I had to do. You know, I did what I had to do. I went back to probation. I went. Did all, did all the right things. All the right things. Yeah, that's that's an insane story. So, you, so somebody stole your bike, and because you got a free bike that was stolen, you got locked up. Well, I didn't know, but the owner of the bar tried to get his insurance to cover it, and he needed a police report. So he called the police, oh. said the, the kitchen manager's bike got stolen, blah, blah, blah. They don't know me from a hole in the wall. They certainly didn't know I had warrants out for my arrest. Yeah. So here I am walking with the bike the next day, and... You know, in a weird way, maybe that was that was the snowball that needed to you know, get your life back on track. It was time. I met the mother of my children at that bar. It was a bar. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. The story again. This story alone could be a movie. <laughs> Is it one of the craziest stories I, I've ever heard? I've had. Oh my god, I've had some times, man. Yeah. So when's the next uh, batch of snakes coming out? Um. I have gravid snakes now. I do have uh, one clutch in one of the incubators mm-hmm. um some ball pythons in the incubators and i am i'm waiting on on more clutches but yeah it's that time so where, if someone wants to buy a snake how do they how do they contact you well i have a website coldbloodedplaythings.com okay i do have a page on uh for cold-blooded playthings on facebook as well okay and um 
we do have an upcoming show at Suffolk Community College, Brentwood Campus, nice. Crooked Hill Road off the highway. Yeah. That big new sports building, there's a full reptile expo there on Sunday, March 12th. Okay. So there'll be me and like 200 other vendors. A guy with just spiders, a guy with this, spiders. a guy with this. Yeah, it's yeah. crazy I over there. Buy a spider. It, I know. Yeah. I did. I had to at one point, you know, because yeah. I had the kids' shows. Yeah. And, they, you know, the first Boy Scouts, like, where's the tarantula? You know, I'm like, oh boy. So I well, had to get one. So I know, I know you haven't listened to the show before, and that's fine, but what I usually do is I take a picture with the, the guest afterwards, and I put it on my Instagram, and I'm like, hey, such and such, thanks for being on the sure. show. Sure. We gotta get, I've never held a snake before, I don't think. I mean, is it, is, is it going to bite me if we hold a snake? You have bite them like nine. I have tame snakes. Can we can we do the picture me, you, and the snake? Yeah, <laughs> hold snake. Absolutely. Maybe you hold it and I'll just be next to the snake. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't want to. Like, I'm not a big snake, but I think that'd be pretty fun. Um, but yeah, is there anything else you want to you want to get? We got a couple minutes left. I I usually give the countdown, but uh, my guest last time, Tra- Travis, actually he he read the countdown, so that was upset me a little bit. Yeah. Um. No. Just thanks for having me on. I hope that you know. Anything that we've covered here today can can help somebody. It's important to tell some of these um, stories about my checkered past in a fun way. Yeah. You know, to, to make it like it's okay. Yeah. We've been there, you know. Yeah. And, and, and people can change and things can get better. And a lot of people, they can't see that in the beginning. And I think it's an important message to send. Yo, I was living in my car. Yeah. And I got a four-bedroom house. How did that happen? It happened one way. Not drinking, doing drugs, and going and talking to people just like me. That's how it happened. Yeah. You know, it's so important to get that out there. And people say, oh, I don't want to go there. Those people are brainwashing. Yeah. Yeah. And yours needs an extra spin cycle. (laughs) You know? Yeah, well, um, Robert, your brother, Yeah, I'd like to think that somewhere Lee and Robert are looking down, watching us do a podcast and laughing at some of the stories we've talked about today. Um, I'm really excited that you know more people know who Robert is. Sounds like a great guy, and I'm, I'm very sorry for your loss. Um, Thank you, and I'm sorry for yours as well. Yeah, but I appreciate you having on the show. Uh, I'm gonna call this one, you know, after you, and then we, you know, I'd love to get you back on. So I'll do a, a Roman numeral two next to it, three, four, so forth. But until uh, next time, thank you very much. Sir. Thank you, man. All right, appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everybody. As Tom mentioned, he's from the band Frequency Overlord. And here is their song, Sunburn, in its entirety.